Welcome to the OKC First podcast. Together, we're learning to do three things. Friendship with God. Friendship with one another. And open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. Today's scripture comes from Luke, chapter 13, verse 31 to 35. That very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. He said to them, Go and tell that fox for me. Listen, I am casting out demons and performing cures today. And tomorrow and on the third day, I finish my work. Yet today, tomorrow, and the third day, I must be on my way because it's impossible for a prophet to be killed away from Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I have desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you are not willing. See, your house is left to you. And I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, man, Benjamin, nice work. Thank you, singers. Let's give everybody a big hand as they head back. Well done, everybody. Well, uh, last week, if you'll remember, we had uh, sort of a little bit of a going away tribute, although she's not going far, uh, sort of a um, going away tribute to Kaylee as she moves to a different position in one. But today, I want to introduce you to our new director of Our Neighborhood Empowered. Now, later on in the service, I'm going to have Jamise and her entire family come down so that we can pray for them. But right now, I just want to introduce her to you. Would you help me welcome, would you stand up for us, Jamise Saranga. <laughs> she is great. She's hit the ground running, and uh, we are very much looking forward to nice, nice job, Bonnie, to help us navigate us through that process to find a good person for this job. So we will see you guys in a little bit. And we will also see Faith and Grant Taylor in a little while later. Now, you will notice that we have our very own Linda Crow seated right back here where she's supposed to be, right? That's where you're supposed to be. No offense to Edmund first, but everybody knows you're supposed to be here, right? Okay. But the Walt Crow Retreat Center uh, hosted another couple this week. Faith Taylor is a pastor in Warsaw in Ohio. And she and her husband, Grant, we had a great discussion yesterday. And also, we're going to have a time of, of prayer and commissioning for them later on in the service, too. So please be ready to come. We want to gather around the Saranga family. We want to gather around Faith and Grant and, um, and just want them to know that, that God is near. God is near and will, will help us, which is a good thing because we're all kind of in Lent and in our own fire swamps, right? Last week showed you a little bit of uh, that Christian movie, The Princess Bride. Uh, not showing that again, but I do want, to, I want us to remember that there are terrors in the fire swamp. We've been saying this, that Lent is a 40-day journey through the wilderness based on Christ's journey through the wilderness of temptation. And we've been saying this as well. Sometimes we make our own wildernesses. And sometimes there is another wilderness that, that confronts us, confounds us at every turn. If you remember, in the fire swamp, we had three, let's say, opponents. Opponents. We had the, uh, the fire spurts, right? You had the lightning sand. And then, worst of all, I think, are the R-O-U-S's, otherwise known as 
the rodents of unusual size. Good Christian people. Jesus had multiple opponents as well. If you'll remember, um, as it had to do with Christ's journey through the wilderness, there was his own hunger, his own hunger. Um, There was also the temptation to trust a story other than the story found in Scripture. There was also uh, this opposition known as the human, the temptation toward the human lust for power. Remember, the tempter said, listen, I'll give you all the authority you need. You can make all of these changes, necessary changes to the world. All you got to do is worship me. So he had that temptation. He also had to face the opposition, let's say, the opposition of uh, the temptation to be spectacular because everybody loves a good show, but Christ realized that it's not a good thing to put God to the test. But Jesus himself in that wilderness had opponents and opposition. So do you. So do I. We say this a lot around here, enemies and opposites and irritants. So sometimes that opposition has a name and a face. It's not that folks, won't, uh, folks like us won't or don't have enemies, because we will and we do. But <laughs> we're called to do the unthinkable. And for many, what seems to be impossible, we're called to love those same enemies, opposites, and irritants. And if you're anything like me, you can at times find that to be very difficult. And here's why. Because enemies are always doing like enemy things. Right? And they're always opposing. And they're always irritating. And yet, Lent calls us to love. Have you ever been tempted to respond to someone else's rejection of you with rejection? (laughs) You don't want me? Well, here's the good news. I don't want you either. More broadly, when someone sins against me or us, how often am I or are we tempted to respond in sin? Judgment for judgment, anger for anger, harsh criticism for harsh criticism. In Lent, we are confronted with all of our contributions to the cycle of violence. But then again, Opposition can be more general than that. Sometimes it's not an opponent, but it still is opposition. Sometimes you sense that in the wilderness as well. It it might be a nameless, faceless, but still be rejection. But it might also be your own failure. That sense that you aren't measuring up. Maybe it's shame that you carry with you that just feels like opposition the entire time. Maybe it's guilt. It's wondering if things will ever get better. You can feel it. There's something resisting you. It's that opposition. And I think sometimes it's harder to face that opposition when it can't, you can't really find a name or a face. But you certainly sense the opposition. The unrelenting cancer feels like opposition. The loss of a job feels like opposition. Barrenness feels like opposition. Isolation and loneliness and the ongoing impact of the pandemic. There are still some people who aren't in the room because of the pandemic, and that has to feel like opposition. And the aforementioned grief, the shame, the failure. Either way, though, 
Whether your opponent is a person or people or not, the opposition tempts us to be something other than, something less than Christ in all of the above situations. It's the opposition that makes the wilderness so dangerous and so frightening. Now in the text that Benjamin just read flawlessly, by the way, Jesus faces all kinds of opposition, layer upon layer, wave upon wave of opposition. There's the puppet ruler Herod, puppet ruler, but still strong enough to kill John the Baptist. And now he seems to be threatening Jesus. But Rome, who actually put Herod in power and kind of kept him in power, seems even more dangerous. And even beyond that, beyond Herod and Rome, they actually represent an even larger, more lethal resistance. As it turns out, a self-interested, self-obsessed culture wanted nothing to do with selfless love. And I think that's still the case. So how will our Christ respond? How will Jesus respond? How does the God who is love respond to all that is angled against love? During Lent, we have to ask the same troubling question. How do we respond to all that is angled against love? The opponents, but also the opposition. Yes, we have to think through how we are going to work with and deal with, how we're going to ultimately love our enemies. But today, this passage asks us how we're going to deal with the opposition that may not have a name or a face. How are you going to walk through this wilderness When the opposition is failure, when the opposition is fame, when the opposition is one of those isms that confront us at every term, there is a way to walk through the wilderness when the opposition is unrelenting, hard to quantify, hard to qualify, and yet you feel it nonetheless. We're on a journey through the wilderness of temptation. And the task is more than just finishing the journey. The task is one of discovery, and for some of us it will be rediscovery. We listen while on the way for the voice of God. We're searching while on the way for the face of God. And all the while, we're doing our best to sift and sort through all the other voices and faces that aren't God, even though they're all offering their own brand of help. As we heard last week, Jesus fell back onto Scripture, the story with the capital S. And that's where Jesus was able to access the reliable face and the voice of God. So we're going to do the same thing today. We are going to take a deep dive into Scripture. We're going to access that same story in order to better understand the Jesus of Luke chapter 13, We'll actually explore the God of Genesis 15, one of my very favorite passages. Now, now watch this. It is very important as we begin this, this sort of detour into Genesis 15, it's very important that you remember that that God is this Jesus. Super important that you remember that that God is this Jesus. And, and once we've gotten a good picture of who God is and where God is, In Genesis 15, perhaps we'll appreciate more where God is in Luke 13 and where God is on March 13. Really proud of that one.
<laughs> I said, that one will kill. And, you know, I would underline that one. Like, make sure you say that one. So let's go to Luke 13 before we take that detour. As we've already heard, this is a picture actually of, in antiquity. This is a picture of what we think Herod Antipas looked like. My hunch is that he didn't quite look that good. At that very hour, some Pharisees actually playing the good guy in this role came and said, hey, you need to get away from here. This Herod that we already know is lethal, we think he wants to kill you too. Jesus is unimpressed. Jesus says, hey, tell you what, go tell that fox. Now, let's stop right here. Foxes are dangerous to barnyard animals. Amen? (laughs) Everybody get that? Barnyard animals will come up several times today. This will be a tough day for barnyard animals. Uh, Let me say this too. Uh, What you see here in Jesus, you will recognize again in God. God cares enough to put God's self at risk. I don't know if you're a note taker. That's a good one though. God cares enough to put God's own self at risk. And so, it should be no surprise to us that Jesus would say, you go tell that fox that's hard on these, my friends, and might, might even want to be hard on me, you go tell that fox, I got work to do and I'm not leaving until I finish my work. I'm not going to be threatened out of this work that I'm going to do here today and What do you think of this line here? I'm casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow. And on the third day, right, I will finish my work today, tomorrow, and the next day. I must be on my way because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. Man, what this tells us is that Jesus must have some sense now of what's happening. What this tells us is that Jesus recognizes that there is opposition beyond the opponent that he knows to be Herod. There is much more than that going on. There's a whole lot more in all of creation angled against Christ than just Herod, the puppet ruler, the dangerous puppet ruler. He recognizes that he's going to get to Jerusalem and it could be tough there in Jerusalem. But he's going anyway. Because... See, if you've heard this before, for the sake of love, God will risk God's self. Does that make sense? So here Jesus is openly acknowledging his opponents and his opposition, and Herod is in fact a problem. He's a puppet, but like we've already said, Just look at the John the Baptist story and you recognize that this is a dangerous, dangerous puppet master. And all the puppet masters seem to be wearing Roman clothing. And Jesus now gives voice to his awareness that Jerusalem's history, city of David, (laughs) that history includes ugly, bloody chapters. But now in Jesus understanding more and more of his role, he recognizes that he will have to face a dangerous religiosity that would rather kill than give up an ounce of power. The stakes are high. The stakes are as high as they can be. This is opposition at its worst. And Christ's wilderness experience here will get worse. So much worse that eventually Jesus, according to Scripture, will sweat blood in his anxiety. And Jesus will pray something like this. 
Fix it, God. Hurry. Yes, he will say, but your will be done. But let's not dehumanize Jesus. Jesus says, God, take care of it. Hurry. Have you ever prayed the prayer, hurry up, God, fix it? How many of us in the room, I would be one, how many of us have been praying that prayer for years? <laughs> Need you to hurry, God. And by the way, I've been praying this prayer for a long time. Need you to hurry. What happens when that prayer isn't answered quickly or often? What, what does that do to our wilderness experience, right? When the opposition is such that the prayer, fix it, God, and hurry, isn't answered often and isn't answered quickly. What does faithfulness in the Lenten wilderness look like when those prayers don't get answered? What are we supposed to think or believe when it seems like the opposition is winning? God, are you not watching Twitter? Where and how does faith take shape when I can't even seem to find God? So this is where in the sermon that we'll make a turn. And in fact, if you have your Bibles, I want you to make a turn like to the left, I think, in your Bibles, all the way to the beginning of the book. Another one of my favorite passages, Genesis 15. Let me, let me set the stage for you. In Genesis 12, God has called to Abram, not yet Abraham. God changes that name later. He's called to Abram and his wife Sarai, not yet Sarah, who, according to Scripture, were actually functioning pieces in a different faith system. God called them out of a different religion, a different theology. And they were old people who didn't have kids, and so they considered themselves to be cursed, to live a less than sort of life. And so here, how's, this is how God gets to them, actually. Like, look, Abram, Sarai, I know that you've got a lot of stuff. You are successful people. You are well-respected in the community, but you don't have kids. And the voice, the voice says... If you will do what I say to do, I will give you kids and land and lots. And so Abram does the unthinkable. He goes. He leaves. He leaves that old faith system to follow the voice in the hope that there would be a child, children, land. And then years pass. Y'all, years pass. In fact, if you want to believe Scripture, and I recommend that you do, decades pass. No kids. No land. Can you blame Abram if doubt starts to creep in? The reality and burden of barrenness, he sees it in Sarai's face every day. For decades, he'd seen it on her face. It was briefly lifted by the promise of these promises, right? But now, it weighs perhaps heavier than ever before. And so in Genesis 15, God shows up to reassure Abram and Sarai. But Abram is trapped in a wilderness of opposition, a wilderness of despair and doubt. And <laughs> Abram here seems to have very little patience for another round of empty promises from God. Ever been there? Yeah, God, if you're going to promise this, I'd kind of like for you to come through like soon. So, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. 
I'm going to go back because I want you to see that. But Abram said, oh, Lord God, I'm not sure about this. What will you give me because I continue childless, and now the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus, which was a servant in his house. No kids. All your stuff goes to a servant in your house. And Abram said, you have given me no offspring, and so a slave born in my house is to be my heir. But the word of the Lord came to him and said, this man shall not be your heir. No one but your very own issue shall be your heir. And then he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and count the stars if you are able to count them. Then he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Here's the problem. It wasn't nighttime. We think it was daytime. Later on in the same chapter, there's great evidence that the sun will then be going down. And later on after that, it gets really dark. So in other words, here is God taking Abram outside, perhaps at noon. says, look up, count all of those stars if you can count them. Hey, friends, if I were to gather us all up, and if I were to gather us all up, all up to go outside, and I were to say to you, look up and count the stars, would you be able to count them? No. But do you believe that they're there? Yeah. Would you be able to count the stars looking up at noon? No. But would you doubt that they were there? No, they're there. In other words, sometimes I know that there are things there that I can't see. Abram, God says, no, you can't see it. But that doesn't mean that it's not there. There's something about that that got to Abram because he believed the Lord. And the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. In other words, God likes it when we believe, when we trust the promise, especially when that promise is not easily seen. But it didn't stop there. And friends, I know it is Kid Sunday, and I didn't choose this passage. Um, this, is a, this is a difficult passage, and it's graphic. But this set of verses I'm about to walk you through changed my faith. Verse 7, God comes back with another promise. I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Abram, still doubting, says, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Because right now I got nothing. And then God says, well, all right. Then bring me a heifer, a ram, and a goat, each three years old. Okay, that may seem strange. And it may seem strange to you now that this would be one of the passages that changed my life. <laughs> Is it just that John really likes cows and goats and rams? They're not bad, but no, that's not it, actually. But Abram would have known what was going on here. God speaks within Abram's frame of reference and says to him, well, now we're going to have what they called back then a suzerain treaty. Now, a suzerain treaty, probably we would understand it better as terms of surrender, a suzerain treaty was regularly struck between parties of unequal strength. The stronger party would say, you go get me a heifer and a goat and a ram, three years old. And then here's the rough part. Maybe like protect the children here. Here's what you do. You cut them in half. Now, three years old, that's pretty well a full-grown animal. And you cut them in half. And you arrange the pieces such that there is an ugly, gory path. And in a suzerain treaty, 
The stronger party, sometimes it was over a debt. And this was the way that the stronger party who was owed the money would have this public treaty to say, this is what the weaker party who owes the money, this is what we are obligating this person to, or else this is what happens to people who don't pay their debts. Or it might have been like a wartime treaty, and the stronger, the winning party, would order a suzerain treaty. And maybe it was the representative of the stronger army would show up to grab the representative of the weaker, defeated army to walk that person through this bloody gauntlet step at a time, considering the fate of the heifer and then the goat and then the ram. And, the, you know, the implications are pretty clear. If you don't honor, if you don't honor the terms of this treaty, there will be a next step to this gory, ugly path. Abram must have thought, I have crossed a line. God has had it with me. Things just got very serious, very scary. But Abram goes and he does everything that he's been asked to do, and he created this awful, gory scene. Verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and a deep and terrifying darkness descended upon him, because, yeah. Now, there was a point in the treaty when the stronger party would announce the terms of the treaty so that all who were listening, especially the one who had lost the battle or owed the debt, would understand the publicly now communicated terms of the treaty. But this is what God said. Know for certain, Abram, that your offspring shall be aliens in a land that is not theirs, and they shall be slaves there, and they shall be oppressed for 400 years. But, verse 14, I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you yourself, Abram, you shall go to your ancestors in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. Those are the terms. That's the promise. And now it's time for somebody to walk the bloody path, friends. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Anytime you see fire and smoke in Scripture, God is on the scene. God has arrived. And so understand this. God shows up for the treaty. And I think Abram sees it and says, oh no, here comes the moment of truth. This is the point at which I sort of am frightened into my commitment. We, we do that in youth ministry sometimes. We did before. This is the 80s. We don't do it anymore. We do that sometimes, though, in religious circles, right? We frighten people into their commitments, thinking, man, if I can just scare them just enough, thief in the night, if I can scare them just enough with stories of the second coming, maybe I can finally get them to commit. Fear is a wasted tool in the hands of a preacher. So they get ready to have this bloody liturgy. And God shows up. And God walks between the pieces. Now Abram showed up too. Abram showed up expecting to be forced to walk the bloody path. But God shows up. God walks the path. Search the scripture, y'all. Abram doesn't. God does not require it. 
of Abram. Instead, God walks the path. Here's what this means. God commits to Abram. No matter what, no matter the risk, to God. I should be able to open the altars right now. By the way, guys, after this, Abram will fail again in terrifying sorts of ways and put Sarah at risk. But here's the thing. God still commits to Abram, who would become Abraham. God walks the bloody path. God committed to Abraham. And that commitment was strong enough to withstand Abraham's failure and lack of commitment. Did you know that even when you are not committed to God, God is committed to you? Did you know that God's commitment to you withstands your faulty commitment to God? No, God didn't immediately fix Abram's problems. He didn't immediately eliminate Abram's opposition out there. But God did reiterate the same promises. And beyond that, God commits, covenantally commits to Abraham, no matter what it might cost God. God promises to sit with Abraham, to walk with Abraham, to wait with Abraham. And friends, this is not the last time that God would commit to us no matter what it would cost. Friends, this is not the last time that God would commit to us no matter what it would cost. I would remind us again, the cross does not communicate to us how angry God gets at our sin. (laughs) The cross communicates to us if we're listening to Scripture. The cross communicates how far love will go to make this point And the point is, God loves you. Now, remember that that God is this Jesus, right? Knowing what God promises those of us struggling with opposition in the wilderness, now hear these words of Jesus. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, And stones those who are sent to it. How often I have desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under the wings and you were not willing. The other thing is not just foxes who are dangerous to barnyard animals like chickens and chicks. It's also fire. A fire was a a deadly threat to chickens and chicks. In fact, several times we've seen this, that a hen would gather her chicks under her wings when there is fire in the hen house, let's say. Many times, the hen will sacrifice her own life, having tried as best she could to gather those chicks under her wings. And yes, the hen dies, but somehow in the process, the chicks are saved. Remember, This God is willing to risk God's own self to love you, to love us, to love Jerusalem, to love Jerusalem, even though Jesus knows what's coming in Jerusalem. So when we're in desolation, 
When it is barrenness, when it is the unrelenting cancer, when it is the job loss, when it is the fracture relationship, when it is divorce, perhaps it is enemies and opposites and irritants that we know exactly their names and their faces. How do we keep going when our prayers that God would hurry up and fix it right now don't seem to be answered very quickly or very often? What, what do we do? We remember that God loves like this. We remember that God, God loves like this. We remember that God loves with a sacrificial love that doesn't always eliminate the fire, but promises to walk with us through the fire. I wish I could tell you that, listen, if you just pray this prayer the right way, if you order the words just right, you get whatever you want. It's like the end of the price is right when it goes well. But we know that's not true. So what do you have for me, John? If that's not true, if we can't somehow slot machine God in a way that gets us what we want and what we need, then what do you have for me today? Because I'm in a terrifying wilderness. Here's what I have for you. God loves you there. God loves you in that moment. God loves you in that terrible, dangerous, cancer-ridden moment. God loves you there. And God will walk with you through that fire even at God's risk of God's self. So what we do during Lent is we covenant to one another and to God that we will remember to remember that we are loved like this. With a sacrificial love at the table, at the table, we eat and drink until we see how it is that we are being shaped to love like this, selflessly, sacrificially, offering companionship as it has been offered to us. Remember, we do this every week, and I'm on record saying, and I'll say it again, I hope you eat so much communion bread that you think you're becoming communion bread, taken, blessed, broken, given. So if you're helping us set the table, please come on up. Heavenly Father, Bless these elements. It's simple pieces of bread and sips from a cup. But somehow in your hands it becomes something more than that. In fact, God, here's what we need for it to be today. We need it to be a tangible reminder, something that jogs our memory so that we can remember that the God of the suzerain treaty is this Christ. And the God of the suzerain treaty and that love that is displayed there is still on display in Christ. Give us a better way to understand the cross. Give us a better way to understand this story that tells the story of eternal, unending love, non-scorekeeping, non-coercive love that is ours for the taking and we call it grace. May we take it today. May we receive this grace today. So bless God these elements because they've got a lot of work to do in us and on us today. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. All of you who are willing, by the way, you don't have to play, you don't have to, to participate today. None are compelled, but all are invited. And you are qualified to come if you recognize your need for this grace. That's all you need. And if you're going to participate, I'm going to ask that you come forward with your hands cupped because, again, it is grace. As you approach a person holding bread, that person will put a piece into your hands 
and say, this is the body of Christ broken for you because we want to keep in front of us this story of sacrificial, non-scorekeeping love that changes everything. Then take that piece of bread, dip it into the cup. Over here, it'll be Kaylee who's got the cup. When you dip that piece of bread into that cup, she's going to say to you, and this is the blood of Christ shed for you, trying to keep that story in front of us, that universe-shaping story, that heart-shaping story, that we are loved like this, and ultimately, we'll be able to love like this. And then you've got some options. But I'd like for you to go and find a place to pray. Now, if you come up here and you dip your hands into this little pool of water, this is where we remember our baptism. And maybe some of you, like me, will want to do that because you need to remember that you're amongst the salvaged, (laughs) the people who are marked out by this same love. Or you can find a place to pray. Anywhere in the sanctuary will work. But I do hope you'll find a place to pray. And here is something that I hope that you will pray. God, remind me again how it is that I'm loved. Perhaps you don't want to come forward, but you do want to take communion. There will be people in the aisles here offering you the prepackaged elements. I'm going to go through the ritual. They've already been blessed. If you just want to sit there and you want to be handed one of these elements, that's perfectly fine. It works just the same, and you can take it as soon as you receive it. Just let the person in the aisle know. It was on the night that he was betrayed that our Savior took bread, blessed it, and he broke it. He gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body broken for you because this Jesus is that God. That love is this love. And every time you eat of it, including today, remember me. Later on, he would take the cup, hold it up before them and say, and this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant. And in this covenant, God commits to you. And every time you drink it, God says, remember me. John, this is different from what I've heard. Yeah, if it is, I'm sorry about that. But this is why we say each and every week, God's mind about you is made up. And the news is good. This is why we say that every week. All across the sanctuary, if you would now, stand to your feet as you are dismissed by a row and come forward to receive these gifts of God meant for the people of God.
going to go ahead and start. I know there's a few more still to come, but I'm going to go ahead and start this prayer of confession. And then after that, Lisa will take us through prayers of the kids. But it's during this time, I'd like to invite the Saranga family to go ahead and come down to this altar right here, if you would, Jamise and family. And then Faith and Grant, if you guys, if you guys will come right here. And then we will have these prayers of commissioning as well. Right there would be great. Heavenly Father, we confess. We confess that sometimes we're intimidated into believing that the wilderness is the only truth that really exists. We're intimidated by the news. Maybe it's intimidated by some of our own life surroundings. We're intimidated into this awful belief that you aren't there you aren't close hear us today God as we try to confess that we have trouble seeing the stars but remind us God that certainly they're there I invite you to pray your own prayer of confession in this moment this prayer of confession before we hand it over to Lisa. May the Almighty God have mercy on us, forgive us all our sins through our Lord Jesus Christ, strengthen us in all goodness and by the power of the Spirit, keep us in eternal life. Now Lisa, lead us through the prayers of our kids. Well, this is a Kids Sunday. So we have prayers that our kids have prayed over the last several weeks. I will read them up loud, and they may also be on the screens. Dear Lord Jesus, hear our prayers. Jesus, I pray that my next date with my mom or dad is great. I really enjoy being with them. I'm so thankful that my whole family gets to go to the beach for spring break. Father, I pray that my little sister gets better soon. Dear Jesus, I hurt my back roller skating, and I pray that it will heal soon. God, I'm so thankful for my mom and how she takes care of me. She hot glued my shoe before we came to church. Dear Lord, I pray for my head that I hit on the doorknob this morning. Jesus, I'm so thankful for the new coin from the Philippines that I received from the missionary speaker who spoke to us today. Jesus, please take care of my mom during her surgery. I smashed my finger and it really hurts. I pray that it gets better soon. I'm so excited that I get to spend time with my cousins who are coming over for a sleepover. Thank you, Jesus, for my family. Dear Jesus, help me not to be afraid of the dark and monsters so I can sleep fat, go to sleep faster. Lord Jesus, touch my grandma and heal her. Jesus, I thank you for your loving watch and care over us, your children. Your incredible desire for us to know you and to draw near to you so that we can find peace and rest. 
I pray that our children will find their security, their hope, and their joy in relationship with you. Lord Jesus, I know that you complete us and you fill us with the joy of your presence. You are there when we need comfort or we want to share our joys or we need to pray for a friend or we just want company. Lord Jesus, I know that you are always faithful to be with us. I'm so thankful for your presence with us on this journey of life. May our children's lives be open to taste and see your goodness as they walk with you. I ask this in your name. Amen. And Father, as we continue in prayer, in this moment of these moments of commissioning, we're reminded of the time when the early church commissioned Paul and Barnabas to go out on their new mission with the knowledge and the assurance that that church was behind them. And so just now we commission Jameis to the work of God as the people of God with the knowledge as she steps out into some unknowns uh, in this new ministry. The knowledge, the assurance that we're with her, not just in this moment this morning, but along the way as our times of rejoicing, we're rejoicing with her. And in the times that there are struggles, we're there to support and encourage and love. And so with joy and anticipation, we do commission her. And at the same time, we pray for the family. We have discovered, many of us, that following you and walking with you and a ministry with you uh, impacts those who love us the most. And so we pray that your spirit would be with her and with this entire family as they begin this new work with, with one. It is our joy to be part of this. And God, we continue to be impacted by and grateful for the lives of Walt and Linda Crow. And all the different ways that Walt and Linda have made space for people over the years and how they continue to make space for ministers in need of a deep breath. And so we bring to you Faith Taylor and her husband, Grant. We pray that you would fill them with hope, inspiration, ideas, energy, as they travel back to Warsaw, Ohio, to minister to their church. Would you give them some protection against despair? Give them some protection against isolation and loneliness. May they know that there's a group of people here in Oklahoma City pulling for them, rooting for them, praying for them. As you do in the bread and the cup, somehow God make us into more than what we thought because we are enlivened, and buoyed by your spirit. Bless faith and grant Taylor. And now, church, if you will join me in this prayer that Christ taught his disciples to pray, it will be on the screens in front of you. Let's pray it now. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
And give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.